you could have heard a pin drop that evening as everyone was sitting around silently trying to figure out what in the world Jesus had just been talking about over dinner. They had a million thoughts running through their head all at once, and they all wanted to ask Jesus a question, but it just seemed like their tongues were cemented to the roofs of their mouth, and none of them had the power or the courage to get out and utter one single word. The disciples sat there lifeless, with furrowed brows, with trembling hands, and with broken spirits. They all knew that Jesus had a knack for saying things that were a little out of the ordinary and a little unorthodox, but nothing could have prepared them for this evening because over this dinner, Jesus had told them three absolutely terrifying things that left them confused and dazed and wondered. The very first thing Jesus said to them was this. It's not going to be very long, and one of you is going to betray me. The disciples were shocked. That cut to their hearts. One of us betrayed Jesus. The 13 of us, uh, uh, 12 apostles plus Jesus, we have been a group for, for three years. We've shared life. We've ate meals together. We've listened to everything that Jesus has ever preached. We've seen him work miracles. We gave up our lives to follow him. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? It just doesn't make any sense. But then it got worse. It got worse as they were finishing dinner Jesus gazes into their already teary eyes and he says, you know, my time has come and in a little while I'm, I'm leaving. And Jesus says, I, I, I hope you catch this. I didn't say we are leaving. I am leaving. I have to go and you can't come with me. I have to go somewhere and right now, this is the end of line. You, you can't follow me any longer. And the disciples, their hearts fall into their stomachs and they think, wait, what are you talking about, Jesus? We followed you for three years. We left our lives to follow you. Not only that, we were just coming into Jerusalem. Just remember a, a couple days ago when people were shouting, Hosanna, you, you were going to come in and, and overthrow, overthrow the Romans and, and bring Israel a new kingdom. You were, you were supposed to be the conquering king. What do you mean you're leaving us? What do you mean you're going somewhere that we can't follow? Why can't we follow you? And then Jesus gives the third reason. He says, well, it's funny you should ask. Actually, no one, none of you is going to want to follow me by the end of this night. In fact, Peter is going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And at that point, the room just goes utterly silent. They don't know what to say. The disciples are utterly despondent and devastated. The, the, their lives have just been flipped upside down. Their dreams have been shattered. They're brokenhearted. And Jesus, as he looks at their faces, he sees that they're confused. He sees that they're broken. He sees that they're devastated. He sees that they are troubled. And after this silence, I imagine maybe had lingered a little too long, Jesus looks up and looks in their eyes and he says to them, a word of encouragement. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the moment of most profound chaos in the disciples' lives, Jesus looks at them and says, don't be anxious. Don't be upset. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. And the question is how? 
How are the, how are the disciples going to trust in Jesus right now? How are they going to stay calm? How are they going to be at, at peace right now with all of these things that they just learned out? Peter's getting ready to fall. They're getting ready to fail. All of these terrible things are swirling around. How in the world can they stay calm? And Jesus says, you have to learn to trust my plan. And that's what he's saying here. That's the big question tonight. You have to learn to trust in me. The cure for a troubled heart, Jesus is making clear, is very simple. He says you have to learn to trust. Trust in God. Trust in me. That's the focal point of our passage tonight. We need to realize that trusting in Jesus is the only thing in this entire universe that has the power to transform a troubled heart. Trusting in Jesus really is. It's the only thing in the entire universe with the power to transform a troubled heart. And that's important for us to learn as well tonight because we might not be disciples and it might be 2,000 years later, but are there still things that are troubling our lives? Are there still things that are hard and confusing and painful for us? Absolutely. There are things that trouble our hearts. Maybe for some of you tonight, you're sitting out there and you're, you're bringing in a really troubled heart just, just like the disciples because you just got some news that was just devastating and threw your life into chaos. Maybe you got a call from the boss and you went into his office this past week and they said, after 10 years, we thank you for everything that you've done, but we're downsizing and you've got a couple weeks left and that's it. You, you're, you're, you're being laid off. And now you think, I have no idea what I'm going to do. How am I going to provide for what do I, Where do I go? I'm scared. I'm nervous. Maybe someone got a call recently. It was you or a loved one. And, and on the other end of the phone line was a doctor saying, we, you know, we noticed something a little off on one of your scans. We need you to come back in. We, we want to run, run some more tests because we're a little concerned about that, about that spot. And ever since then, you've been in constant panic and, and, and nervousness and agony thinking, what is going on? Or maybe some of you tonight are here with heavy hearts because you every single day just feel alone in a crowded room. Maybe for some of you, you feel alone because you wish that you were married. You wish that you had a family and that just hasn't come yet. And you're fighting these feelings of unworthiness. You're fighting these feelings of feeling uh, just isolated and lacking community. For some of you, it could be the opposite. Maybe you're in a marriage, but you feel alone. Because your spouse just doesn't seem to have interest. You don't feel like they really care about you. You just feel so alone and trapped. Or possibly you just feel like maybe no one even cares about you. You've had that thought, what would even anyone notice if I wasn't around anymore? And you just feel like you've been abandoned and not loved by all the people that are closest to you. Maybe that's what it is. Or possibly you're here tonight and you have a troubled, heavy heart because there is shame and guilt about the sins and failures and mistakes that you've been carrying around. And you think God can't possibly love or forgive me. When I look in the mirror, all I see are my failures. All I see is addiction. All I see is sin. All I see is all of these things telling me how unworthy I am of God's love. And maybe you're troubled tonight because you don't know that you're going to spend eternity with God and when this life comes to an end. Whatever it is, we all have troubles. We all have cares. We all have concerns. And tonight, I want us to ask the question, do I have a heart that's troubled? Or do I have a heart that's trusting? What does my heart look like? Do I have a heart that's troubled or do I have a heart that is trusting? Because God is telling us tonight, if we have a troubled heart, he wants us, he calls us, he's telling us, he's inviting us to give those troubles over to him and to learn to trust in him and to trust his plan. 
So as we dive into John 14, 1 through 6 tonight, we're going to see the command to trust in Jesus. We're going to see the urgency of trusting in Jesus, and then we're going to see the comfort that comes from trusting in Jesus in those six verses. So you guys can follow along as I read it aloud. Starting in verse 1, John 14 says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In our very first verse here, Jesus starts off with a command to trust in him. He says, listen up, guys, don't be afraid. Don't let troubles be filling your heart. No, he said, instead, trust in me. You believe in God, believe also. Put your trust in me. And Jesus is saying that though you don't understand my plan, you don't understand why I'm leaving, you don't understand the uncertainty and the things that are going on in your life, you need to learn to realize that my plan is what's best for you. That's the same thing that we need to learn. We might not always understand what Jesus or God is up to in our lives, but Jesus is saying, I learned to trust in my plan because I'm working all things together for your good. And then in verse 2, Jesus starts to give an explanation for why he has to leave them. Jesus says, I'm leaving you because I need to get everything prepared for your future arrival at my father's house. Jesus is affirming that his departure has a purpose. There was something that Jesus still needed to do to prepare for their arrival in heaven, and that preparation required, for, required Jesus to leave this earth. So what is Jesus talking about here? What does Jesus have to prepare? Why does Jesus have to leave this earth in order to prepare for their arrival to his father's house? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't think that this verse is specifically uh, talking about Jesus going back because heaven is in disarray and need of a major renovation and makeover before we get there. I don't think Jesus was sitting there and saying, I got to go and prepare a place for you because I know that the beds aren't made and the furniture's dusty and man, that, that decor is so outdated and I got I to gotta take care of all that before it's ready to receive you believers. I, I don't think that Jesus is talking about extreme makeover heaven edition. That's not what's running through his head here. No, the problem wasn't the luxuriousness of the accommodation. It was the limited access to the father's house. Because realize at this point as Jesus is sitting in the upper room with his disciples, their sins had not yet been atoned for. There was a way to heaven, and guess what? It was blocked by our sin. Our, our sin for us to go from here to heaven, there's only one way, and at this point, they couldn't, get, they couldn't travel that road because our sin had made a barrier, a separation between us and God. It had cut us off. It was impassable, and there was no way to get to the destination. Jesus had to create a way. So imagine it like this. You and your friends this past winter, you and a friend, you decide that you want to go on a vacation to an awesome ski resort up in, uh, up in the Rockies over in Colorado, right? So you find this awesome resort. It's way nestled up right at the peak of the mountain. It's beautiful. It's awesome. You have it all in mind that you want to go there. You fly out to Denver. You get your rental car. You're cruising through the mountains. But then you realize the night before a blizzard hit. 
And this blizzard dropped two feet of snow, much like Wausau in spring. So this blizzard drops two feet of snow. And you realize, I'm at the bottom of this mountain. The lodge is at the top of this mountain. And there's two feet of snow. And I'm driving a Prius. There's no way that I'm going to get from here up to there, right? What happens? Well, imagine that right at this time, a giant plow truck pulls up. And they say, where are you going? And you say, I need to get up to the ski resort, but I can't. The road is blocked. I'm powerless. My Prius can't do anything. And he says, why don't you hop in the truck and we'll plow away up to the mountain for you, right? I hope you see my silly illustration, what's going on there. That, that's us. We're trapped at the bottom and we can't get to God's house. We can't do it. We can't get to heaven on our own. And us trying to earn our way to heaven, us trying to think that we can work our way, it's about as silly as thinking a Prius can drive through two feet of snow up a mountain. Like, that's exactly what it says in the Bible. We can't save ourselves. We needed someone to come and make the way. We needed someone to come and plow through our sin and clear it out so that we could go to the house of our Father. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's the Savior that does that. He's saying, I go to prepare a place for you because I'm making the way for you to be able to arrive there. I'm getting the keys to unlock the door of heaven so you can enter into your room after you pass. The disciples didn't realize it, but Jesus was about to spend the next few days preparing the way. He's about to spend the next few days clearing out the path of their sin. And he did that very clearly through the gospels by going and dying on a cross for our sins. He was beaten, he was scourged, he was spat upon, he was mocked, he was crucified with nails between his hands and his feet that affixed him to this cross. And while he was on the cross, it says very clearly in scripture, Jesus was made sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in that moment took the pain, the penalty, and the punishment for our sin so that we could have a relationship with the Father. He made a way by dying for our sin by being buried in a tomb, and by rising again victoriously over death. That's how Jesus made the way. And that's important for us to realize because we need to trust in him for our salvation. We need to trust in Jesus alone because he alone is the person with the power to bring us to heaven. He's the person who alone has the power to bring us to God. And that brings us to the urgency of trusting in Jesus. The urgency We see this very clearly in verse 6 of chapter 14. Jesus says, there's something urgent about putting your trust in me. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture because it tells us there is a very exclusive way that we can have a relationship with God and our sins forgiven. The only way is by putting our complete and total trust in Christ. That's important because there's a lot of people who don't realize that. One of my favorite questions to ask someone when I'm having a gospel conversation or a spiritual conversation is if you were to die today and you were standing before God and God was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, this passage makes it very clear. There's only one right answer. It's not multiple choice. There's not a variety of things you could choose from. There's one right answer. But you wouldn't believe how many people get that question wrong when you ask them. 80%, 85% of Americans believe that they are going to heaven 
70% of Americans believe that you can get to heaven through a variety of religions and beliefs and actions, right? There's a lot of people who don't understand what this verse is talking about. They don't understand the sacrifice of Christ. They've been deceived by thinking there are alternate routes to heaven when there's only one way through Christ. It reminds me of a friend of mine named Keegan. Uh, my friend Keegan loves concerts, and he lives out in California, and he wanted to go to a Coldplay concert up in L.A., but the tickets were very, very expensive. And the Coldplay concert, they encouraged you to only buy verified tickets off of Ticketmaster because that was the only true vendor of tickets for this concert. Well, he didn't like the price of those tickets, so what did he do? He bought two tickets off of another retailer claiming to have verified tickets, right? He said, I like the price of these ones a lot better. So the day the concert comes, they drive all the way up to L.A., they get to the front of the line, they hand him their tickets, thinking they're going to have a great time, it's going to be an awesome concert, and the guy says, where do you think you're going with these? And he's like, to enjoy the concert. He said, well, you need tickets for that. These are parking passes. <laughs> and my friend Keegan had to stand outside and not enjoy the concert because he didn't buy the right ticket. Sadly, the Bible tells us there's going to be a lot of people like that on the final day of judgment because there's only one verified ticket that can get us into heaven, and that's trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But there's a lot of people that are looking for alternative routes and doing it their way. They want to go to heaven on their own terms. They want to decide how they can earn God's forgiveness and get there. So I want to I address two of the most common misconceptions, two of the most common alternate routes that people think will get them to heaven but will actually end in destruction. The first answer that I most commonly hear when I ask that question of how you get to heaven is this. I'm a really good person. I mean, that's the first one every single time. I'm a really good person. They want to right there just pull out their old-fashioned scale and say, like, uh, I'll tell you everything I've done right in my life, and then I'll tell you a couple of the wrong. Like, I, I, did, I did tell a little lie one time when I was in fifth grade. Like, that's it, though. I mean, I'm pretty good. But that's what people start to do. They start to weigh the good and the bad, and they say, I've done a whole lot of good. I think God just wants me to be a good person. I, I think I'm okay. But the Bible tells us that when we say we're good, that's our measurement of good because God says there's none righteous, there's none good, no, not one in Romans 3, right? So that's not true. Goodness doesn't get me into heaven. Good isn't good enough. The second one I hear is this. You know, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a pretty impressive religious res resume ready to go for Jesus. I've done some pretty awesome things for Christ. And they start thinking of all the good works and all the things that they've done. I've gone to, you know, I've gone to church pretty much every weekend of my life. I, I, I've given a lot of money to the church. I, I, I've, uh, you know, I serve at a homeless shop. I've done, I've done lots of things. I, read, I try to read my Bible. And you know what? I even try to pray more than just at meals. Like, I've done a lot of really good religious stuff. I've been polishing up this resume. There's no way that God wouldn't hire me. There's no way that God's not going to accept me. The problem is there's a big difference between knowing a lot about God and actually knowing God. Think about it this way. Um, I think of someone random. Like, Pastor Sam. We'll go to Pastor Sam. So Sam, uh, <laughs> let's say Sam is just absolutely obsessed with Aaron Rodgers. I, I, don't know if, I actually don't know if he is or not. But let's say he's absolutely obsessed with Aaron Rodgers to the point that he's like stalked him online. He knows everything about him, where he went to college. You know, he knows, he knows uh, pretty much every single stat by heart. He knows absolutely everything there is to know about Aaron Rodgers. So he decides next time he he's over in Milwaukee, he's going to pay Aaron Rodgers a visit and go to his house right? So he goes up to Aaron Rodgers' house, and he rings the doorbell, and Aaron Rodgers answers the door, and he says, who are you? 
He says, how do you not know me? He, I, I know everything about you. I know where you went to college. I know every stat from every game you've played for, for two. I, I even come and visit you on Sundays sometimes and cheer for you. Like in, in your stadium, I worship you, right? Like, like getting the idea. Yeah, yeah I, I know everything about, come on. How, how do you not know me? Let me into your house. He says, I'm not, get out of here, creep. I'm not letting you in my house, that, uh, right? <laughs> well, the difference there is, there's a big difference between knowing a lot about someone and actually knowing someone. There's a difference between being part of a family and a fan. Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants followers. He wants people with a real relationship with him. Don't fall for the deception that just because I know the Bible trivia answers and the stats and all these other things and the timelines that I have a relationship with Christ. It's all about have I turned away from my sin and truly put my faith in him? Is he the Lord of my life and my savior? So how? How do I trust in Jesus? How can Jesus become my one way to God, my source of truth and my eternal life? Well, the Bible makes it really clear. We have to repent of living our way, right? So we have to go from living our way to following the way. Early Christians in the book of Acts were called followers of the way. And that's what it's talking about there, repentance. They've turned from idolatry. They've turned from their sin. They've turned from their rebellion and their disobedience against God. And they said, I'm a disciple of you. I'm going to follow you and you alone. Repent, turn away and start following the way. Start following Christ. And the second is by trusting in Jesus alone for the sufficiency of our salvation. Trusting that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he meant it and we don't contribute anything to our salvation. That means taking away, going back to our metaphor of trying to get up the mountain with the snow. I'm not grabbing a snowblower and trying to blow off a little bit of snow on the path up to, uh, up to the top of the Rockies, right? I realize I can't do it. I have to get in the plow truck. I contribute nothing. It's not Jesus 90% me 10%. It's not Jesus 99 and me 1%. Nothing. I'm trusting in Christ alone. And it's so cool that we can realize from this passage tonight and from other passages in Scripture, I'm thinking particularly, particularly in Romans, if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. So when Jesus was saying this, that there's a room for you, that I'm preparing a way that you can go to heaven, he's looking even to the Peters and saying, yeah, even you, even someone who denies me, even someone who makes mistakes, even someone who's so imperfect, my grace is sufficient for you. So if you're out there tonight thinking that you've made too many mistakes, that you have too much sin, that you've just done things that there's no way that God could forgive, that's a lie. God's grace is powerful, and it's more powerful than your sin if you trust in Jesus. So we've seen the command to trust in Jesus. We've seen the urgency. Now I want us to look at the comfort that comes from trusting in Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. These verses only really make sense once we understand verses 1 and 6. Because this is the result for anyone who truly trusts in Jesus. This is our eternal destination that we get to arrive at. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. In these verses, Jesus helps his, his disciples understand why trusting in him has the power to take away their fears, their pain, their anxieties, their brokenness. And he says it has the power to take away those things because the greatest fear, the greatest trouble in your life has been remedied. Death 
has been defeated. The sting of death has been removed. Death used to be a, a door that led one way into a dungeon. And God says, now death has been transformed to where death is, it's still unpleasant, but it's a lot more like immigration when you're going to an awesome country, right? It's the last annoying stop before you get to go enjoy a beautiful vacation. That's what death is. It's just a place that we pass through as we're immigrating to a better country. And he gives us a glimpse of what that looks like in these verses. He says, this is what heaven's going to look like. And notice the very first thing that he points out. He doesn't call it heaven. He doesn't call it a country. He doesn't call it a kingdom. He says, it's my father's house. Notice the intimacy that we get to have with God when we spend eternity in heaven. How many houses does Jesus refer to here? How many houses? No, it's a trick. No, I'm just kidding. One, right? Just one house. But how many rooms? There are many, many rooms. And Jesus is using an analogy here that his disciples would have quickly picked up on. In ancient Palestinian culture, when a son would get married and start his own family, if they were a wealthier family, a lot of the times they wouldn't go and get their own house, the father's house, guess what they would do? They would add on to the father's house and add a new wing and then another wing and then they'd make courtyards. But the, the main house kept adding on rooms. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. We don't just get to go to heaven and be in the same city as God. We don't just get to be next door neighbors. We are invited to live in his house. And the reason we do this is because we get to be God's kids. We're not just his citizens. We're not just his subjects. We're his beloved children. Do you realize how incredible that is? We have all the rights and privileges of a child of God. His house becomes my house. When I was a little kid, the place that I felt most safe and secure in the entire world was my parents' house. That was the place where I could be free to be myself. That's the place where I felt like my needs were provided for. That was my place where I knew I was loved and I felt like I, uh, I belonged. And Jesus says, amplify that by a hundred, and that's what heaven's going to feel like. It's going to be the most amazing, the most familial, the most uh, nourishing home that you could ever imagine, and you are going to belong there. But not only that, Jesus says in verse 3, guess who else is going to be there? He says, I'm going to be there. I'm coming back to take you to where I am, and you get to be with me forever. The moment that we pass away from this life, we get to be with Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. Nothing can separate us from him again. There's feelings of separation or distance that we have sometimes now because of our sin or because of all these other worries or cares or concerns that's gone. We get to be in the, in the presence of Jesus forever. We know how awesome it is to be around the people that we love. I'm thinking about my wedding in 11 days, and there are going to be so many people I love there, people from all around the country. I have groomsmen coming in from five different states. That's going to be a joyous day. I haven't seen my fiance in two months. That's going to be a joyous day. <laughs> but guess what? As soon as the wedding ends, the groomsmen are going to go away. After Megan's here for a couple months, she has to go back to California and spend some time finishing up her nursing degree next year. The person I love, I don't always get to be with. That time of being near, that, that love is, is rich when we're together, but those times of having everyone in my life that I love so much being together is rare. That's not how it will be in heaven. There'll be no more goodbyes. There will be no more separation. There will be no more distance between the ones that we love. We will be with Jesus forever. Jesus is our greatest source of joy and excitement in this world. And we get to sit at the feet of him forever and never be cut off from the source of joy again. Jesus shares this glimpse of eternity to encourage his hurting 
and despondent disciples. Jesus knows that they're facing hard trials. He knows that they're experiencing sadness. He understands that they are feeling discouraged. But Jesus is reminding them that the troubles of this life aren't so overwhelming and terrified, terrifying when we view them through the lens of eternity. Think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, when he said, We don't lose heart. Though our outer, self, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comprehension. Jesus and Paul are both telling us to find comfort in the chaos of this world by remembering the amazing reward of trusting in Christ. So yes, I might be scared because I just lost my job and I'm not sure how I'm going to provide. But then I get to remember that God is my heavenly father who promises to take care of his kids for all of eternity, but not just for eternity, but for my life here and now. I might feel anxious about the immediate future and, and all the uncertainty that's going on, but I don't have to be overcome by fear because I know where I am, but I also know the conclusion of the story. And even though there might be some twists and turns and unexpected things along the way, I don't have to fear because nothing can take away the end of the story, which is I'm going to heaven. I still get to go to heaven no matter what. And yes, I might be troubled by a scary health diagnosis, yet I can find peace knowing that even if the worst would come, the sting of death is no longer the one-way door to a dungeon, but it's just a transition to a better country where I get to be with the Lord. Yes, I might feel lonely or abandoned, or unloved right now, but I have the promise that Jesus loves me, and he loved me so much that he died for me. And not only that, I get to spend eternity with him, and he will never abandon me, or leave me, or forsake me. And yes, I'm still going to make mistakes in my spiritual walk, but I don't have to be overcome by, uh, by uh, fear. I don't have to be overcome by thinking that God no longer loves me. I, I don't have to be overcome by the thought that maybe I just lost my room in heaven. No, when I trusted in Christ as my Lord and Savior, my sin was nailed to the cross, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So whatever it is tonight, all of us need to trust in the Lord. That's the application of this passage. We need to realize that the troubles in our hearts, the only cure, the only treatment is trust in the Lord. So we need to respond to the command. We need to obey the command to trust in him. We need to realize the urgency. And if, there's something, if we've never trusted in the Lord, we need to do that. We need to realize the urgency. And then lastly, we need to take comfort knowing that eternity has been secured and our lives have been transformed and that God loves us and that Jesus is faithful and he will never leave us or forsake us. So I want to pray and then we'll go into a time of reflection and singing and praising God. But let me just pray for a moment now. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing passage in John 14 that's not only, uh, it's not only descriptive that we need to have a relationship with you. It's not only telling us that we need to put our trust in Jesus, but it gives us the reward. It tells us how amazing it is to tr trust in Jesus. It tells us how amazing it is to have our lives transformed by your grace because when we were separated and powerless, God, you loved us and you made a way. Jesus loved us that much. There's no other way. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with you. We need Christ. So God, as we get ready to sing the song, The Way, right now again, and we focus on those words of what that actually means, work in our hearts. 
Expose the sin. Show us the ways that our lives need to be transformed by the profound truth that you alone are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through you. And the only reason that we can pray right now is because of what Christ has done. So it's through his name that we pray. Amen.